Today's podcast was extremely good. One of my favorite episodes ever. I had my friend Amr Samaha on, and we talked about a bunch of different things. He is building a almost over a $100 million project in Beverly Hills. We talk about his multi-million dollar watch collection and what it means to be a true collector and just everything that goes with it. We also go over what it was like living in the Middle East during bombings and growing up in that type of nature and uh, just how it shaped him today as an entrepreneur and uh, as someone who's doing some crazy things. So you're going to want to listen to the end of this podcast because we go in depth on a lot of different topics. Also, I've got my mastermind coming up here on September 30th through October 2nd. He's actually going to be at it if you want to meet him in person. Um, it's going to be a really cool three-day event here in Las Vegas, so you don't want to miss out on that. Um, link to that down in the description below. Now, let's jump into it. We all know that I love creating passive income through rental properties, but did you know that you can create passive income through owning an e-commerce store? My company, Lunar Ecom, can build and manage a store for you on Amazon or Walmart. We'll handle everything from starting the store, picking the products, and all the day-to-day -day operations. It's completely passive for you. If you'd like to learn how store owners are making thousands a month in passive income, head over and watch the case study at LunarEcom.com. It will explain everything you need to know about the industry and why I'm so excited about it. So to see the case study, head over to LunarEcom.com. If you've ever wanted to invest with me on my real estate deals, it's now possible. At Pineda Capital, we're purchasing value-add real estate all across the country. This includes multifamily, commercial, and land development. The best part is, with my network, social media presence, and marketing strategy, we're able to get the very best deals that others don't have access to. You can join in with me on those deals if you're an accredited investor. If you want to learn more, head over to PinedaCapital.com to see our current opportunities. Once again, that's PinedaCapital.com. Welcome to The Ryan Pineda Show, where our mission is to invest. I only expect to make money in things that I understand. Innovate. It's about believing in the future and thinking that the future will be better than the past. And inspire. I am much more likely to hit my goal just due to putting it out there. Now rocking with the best. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Ryan Pineda Show. Today, I have one of my brand new friends, also one of our students in our Future Flipper Coaching Program, Amr Samaha. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. <laughs> if you guys are watching YouTube, you can see that he's got pink hair. I've got blue hair. <laughs> we, I don't know what we're doing, dude. We're free balling, man. I know, dude. You, you told me that you are treated more nicely with your pink hair. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I usually go between gray and, uh, and pink. And whenever I have gray hair, it seems that people, you know, are very serious with me. And then when I have pink hair, I think uh, people just uh, extend a little bit of courtesy and kindness. Like, they're, they're just like, this guy's a goof. Yeah, like, you know, he's, maybe he's soft in the head. Who yeah, knows? <laughs> he's not harmful. Yep, that definitely disarms people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I, you, when you said that, I was like, I don't know that I've been treated any different with blue hair. It's just like, what is this guy doing? I, I don't know. I, I definitely realize that it's a thing for me with pink hair. Like, uh, you know, people are extremely kind. They, they let me cut in the line. They just... I don't, know, I don't know how to describe it. You just do what you want. Yeah, basically. Nice, yeah, it's, dude. Uh, it's pretty nice. I love it. So, you know, on today's episode, I, I want to jump into your story because you got so many things going on, man. You came here um, from Kuwait, 
you also have Egyptian heritage, you're building, you know, hundred plus million dollar developments in LA. And also too, you've got this multi-million dollar watch collection that I definitely want to talk about. So man, is, I don't even know if we're gonna have enough time to get into everything, but let, like, let's just jump into it, dude. Tell me about your upbringing. Yeah. Uh, so growing up in Kuwait, um, you know, my parents moved when I was about three. Uh, it was right after the first uh, Gulf War. And uh, my father helped uh, the Kuwaiti people redevelop uh, a lot of their properties there. So there's a lot of like heritage in my family where, you know, we come from a long line of engineering and developers. Uh, and to that end, uh, growing up in Kuwait, it felt, you know, very uh nice to kind of feel that um american people were always watching your back um at, i remember very clearly at some point during the second gulf war uh scud missiles flying overhead and then patriot missiles coming out and blowing them out of the sky and if you can't think you can't help but think to yourself you know these people are the best nation on earth yeah. and uh for that and that alone i've always had this like undying loyalty to america even when you never had been to America or Absolutely anything. Absolutely not, no. I, d I didn't go to America till I was probably 17. Uh, so kind of a young adult. And till that point in time, you know, growing up as a child, they take you to the fire department, the police station, and then you end up on an aircraft carrier where you're told, you know, these people are protecting you, they're your military. And it was honestly one of the most endearing things to know that there's a nation out there that was watching out for someone else's interest. Um, and kind of protecting these people. Um, so yeah, that was that was definitely a very uh, fortunate thing for, for the nation that I grew up in, and uh, it made it so that we lived very peacefully and uh, uh, flourished. And you know, beyond that, I went back home to Egypt to kind of get a little bit of that heritage, and I, uh, I studied architecture there, uh, helped develop a company that eventually was sold and did extremely well. Uh, I moved with my girlfriend at the time to the U.S. after she had kind of been starting to look at uh, some jobs with the United Nations in New York. Uh, and during that time, I got introduced to this venture capital world uh, where I worked for four or so years and then eventually took what I learned in that space and what I already known in architecture and real estate development and kind of combined the both in what we're currently doing in Los Angeles. Um, I think that's the kind of the high level cliff notes of uh, yeah, what my yeah. Like. I mean, there's obviously a lot that goes into what you just said. Um, first thing I want to touch on is, like, ma'am, what was it like growing up in the Middle East during this time? With like, you you hear about all the war oh. and like these bombings and these crazy things, like, but you actually lived through it. You saw missiles. Yeah, dude. Um, it was it was tough. You know, um, having an insane neighbor is not a not a sweet thing. Uh, so Saddam Hussein, the infamous dictator, was the next door neighbor. And, um, you know, always felt like there's this looming cloud of darkness. And if it weren't for the American military protecting Kuwait, you know, I probably wouldn't be here. I remember very clearly at some point in time, um, you know, uh, being at the mall and uh, a Scud missile, like I said, being shot out in the second Gulf War. And... Um, you know, you look up at the sky and this is all happening in like split seconds, right? And sirens go off and you're running out trying to get for shelter. And um, you see a Patriot missile come out and it had actually misfired a little too slow. Um, and uh, it blew the thing out of the sky. But even in misfiring, we were okay. 
Now imagine if that hadn't happened, probably we wouldn't be here with you today. It's crazy. Uh, so to that end, it was uh, it was definitely a rough time. Um, yeah, it w- it wasn't easy, but thankfully uh, we were on the right side of history, and thankfully I'm here with you today. Yeah. Well, you were just telling me too when you came to America, you were just like already the biggest patriot ever. Cause you're like, dude, these guys are the best people on earth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, and that honestly goes back to this general ideology where, you know, the American people were siding with what's right. You know, there was at the end of the day, it wasn't America's place to, to intervene if it weren't just because they were doing what's right. Yeah, um, they were getting in the middle of something that's ugly and unnecessary for the American people to get involved in. But in them doing so, they helped many nations in the area develop and get the opportunity where you know people like me were uh, offered comforts in life and were able to add something to humanity, which is I hope what I could do at some point in time. Yeah, well, and you know, uh, you you see all these people who. Um, protest uh, the war and America getting involved in this stuff and you, you've heard so many people say you know whatever they we should not be dealing with all these other countries problems and different things but to see like you as a result of what we did out here in America now doing great things for America innovating developing and building it just shows like it's worth it I uh, I think it's absolutely worth it um uh, I'm obviously no politician. I'm just speaking of my personal experience. And all I could tell you is my personal experience would have probably been extremely different hadn't been for the help of the American people. Uh, I I can't stress that enough. Yeah. Um, So, you know, to each their own. But I could also understand the other side. You know, at some point I had served in the Egyptian military. I did not like it. I don't want to get involved in other people's issues. Um... But at the same time, all I do know is my experience, and the American people helped me a lot to live a much better life and, you know, go after it. Yeah, I love that. So that's crazy that you grew up through all of that stuff. I can't even imagine. But um, eventually it led you to going back to Egypt where you got into architecture. How'd that happen? Uh, so if you can't tell by my pink hair, I was always... <laughs> You're uh, creative. Yeah, I always had the <laughs> flair for... Uh, for creativity, I'd say. Um, like I said, my dad was uh, an engineer himself, and he was in real estate development. So the closest thing that I could do, you know, associated to that was architecture. Uh, it was kind of blending a skill set that I wanted to build on for my family, um, which is, you know, the real estate development side of things, and then gave me the opportunity to express my creativity. Um, and I found my place in architecture. I studied that for five years. Um, I'm an architectural engineer, uh, so licensed both to be an engineer and an architect. Um, And from that point onwards, I kind of wanted to monetize that degree to the best capacity that I can. Um, And I realized that architecture is one of those spaces that's a rite of passage. Uh, So you do a lot of work for a lot of years for very little (laughs) and that didn't sit very well with me so um you gotta earn your stripes basically uh and uh i wanted to fast track that so i thought how can i do that um 
and basically led me to doing business in architecture, right? Uh, so I started working on something that's called signage and image, uh, which is basically uh, doing corporate architectural branding, um, things like Starbucks or, uh, you know, Mercedes-Benz or Porsche have a specific image to their company. Um, Panada HQ, soon to be, yep, will yep. also have an image to its space, right? And people identify that space by the elements that are in it. Even if you don't see that it says, you know, whatever the company name is. I would know what a McDonald's look like without the logo. Exactly. And to that end, I started manufacturing uh, corporate image for some of these conglomerates. And we were basically beating, outbidding everyone in the region because of the labor uh, arbitrage between you know, someone that's doing it in Europe and someone that's doing it in South Africa, and then us doing it in Egypt. Um, I was able to really do well on quality control, and at some point we got contracts for a lot of those cor corporate companies. Uh, at some point we had one client that had 252 locations distributed in one year, um, at which point we were poached by uh, one of the larger companies that does this, and they offered us uh, an offer that we couldn't refuse, and that's where I kind of dipped. Okay, so your company sold out. This is you living in Egypt still doing this. Correct. It was 10 years of me living in Egypt. So five doing school and then five doing business. Wow. Yeah. And so when did you move to America? I'm really bad with dates, but I want to say it was around 2014, 15. Okay, so you go to New York because your girlfriend at the time uh, Correct. wanted to work for the United Nations. And yeah, and my wife now. Wife um, now? So uh, at that point in time, yeah, she was uh, she was moving to work for the United Nations in New York, uh, or at least in preparation to do so. Uh, she used to work in The Hague prior to that for the United Nations. And um, she asked, you know, how about you come? You'll see, you know, New York and meet my family and, uh, and help me move in. I did, and uh, I got offered an opportunity through her brother to uh, work with him slash for him for um, – VC that uh, was just acquiring a new medical technology um, and they were looking for, you know, smart individuals that understood the space. I definitely did not understand the space, but I uh, I knew that I can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so to that end, I was offered the job. I couldn't turn it down. And I did that for the next four years. Um, it was probably some of the hardest work that I've ever done. Um, and it was also some of the biggest growth uh, opportunities that I've had um, in my life, to be honest. Working in New York is a whole different beast, and it gives you uh, a certain drive. Um, and that was definitely something that I could leverage today. Yeah. So tell me about what you were doing with that company. Uh, so it started off with us uh, acquiring a pharmaceutical that uh, targeted the lumbar spine, which is a lower back of uh, lower part of your back um, and it would basically uh, try to alleviate uh, disc pain uh, also known as sciatica um, and it was a Korean drug and basically what we were going to do is put it through its paces with the FDA um, and then if it were something that would be approved then we would you know commercialize that drug and then sell it off to a bigger conglomerate say J&J so we started working on that initially, and while doing that, we acquired a few other companies um, and transitioned to work on one of them that had a sooner exit time, uh, and that was a lumbar device. So it's uh, if you hurt your back um, and you need to have it fused, 
this was an alternative that would give you that flexibility uh, where you'd still be able to move those segments. Um, and my specific part was basically to lobby uh, on behalf of the company for um, health insurance providers and explain to them the data that would show that it's better for the client and at the same time better for the bottom line for the insurance provide <coughs> provider. Right, right. Um, and, you know, we were successful at doing that. And at some point we were able to leverage um, that acquisition and sell it off to a larger conglomerate that is um, traded on the public markets. Wow. So, <laughs> you know, what's crazy is most people I talk to, including myself, right? When we get into real estate, it's pretty much always the same path of, all right, let's buy a, a house here, a house there, I'll start flipping, maybe we wholesale, we buy some rentals. And then like in my case, I started doing bigger deals. All right, let's develop my custom home. Let's develop this office building. Let's buy a 300 plus unit apartment. But you did the opposite. <laughs> you were like, hey, let me, uh, you know, go learn architecture and high level development stuff. Okay, now I'm going to go to New York and work for this VC and <laughs> go pitch and lobby and do the stuff that like these billion dollar corporations have to do because it, yeah, I've never had to go lobby for one of my real estate projects, but I know that's part of it. Politics plays a huge role in getting development approved. Yeah, and and speaking of that, we're actually doing some minor <laughs> lobbying in in the in the in the areas that we're in for uh, larger developments. Um, lobbying has a bad stigma, generally speaking, but it's actually a good thing. All it means is that you're explaining. Um, what is going on with the with the thing that you're trying to achieve? Right. And sometimes people need to understand your perspective, and uh, and being able to pitch that perspective is lobbying. At the end of the day, if it's legit, it'll go through. If it's not, you get kicked to the back of the line. But at least you have the opportunity, Correct. whereas you wouldn't. Correct to present what you have to present. Um, you know, it, you're you're absolutely right. I wouldn't say that I always had this vision of kind of like doing it from the top down, <laughs> yeah, yeah. From, from the top and then going down. Um, but I did identify early on that uh, there are kind of two paths to doing everything. And I really didn't like the path where I was going to get taken advantage of uh, for several years. Yeah. Um, and to that end, I kind of chose the path that had a lot more risk, but I could see that it has a lot more rewards. Um, you know, beyond the point where I studied architecture and then sold that company and started doing all that work for the VC. Uh, once I decided to get back into real estate and kind of uh, merge the knowledge that I had gotten with VC and then the knowledge that I had from architecture, um, I realized that the city that I decided to do this in is very competitive. I decided to do this in LA and you know, there's a lot of people on the market basically trying to get on the smaller deals. And I could already see that in doing that, I would be in a very tough spot trying to, you know, position myself. So quickly and early on, I realized that if I went after luxury developments, I'd have a lot more leeway. And especially if there were luxury developments that uh, were riddled with issues that only an architect would understand. And I kind of went after that. So I, uh, I started off by, uh, by buying a property that was undervalued in the Hollywood Hills area with jetliner views. Um, it was a downhill slope, um, which is very hard to, to build and has a lot of regulation around it. Um, and we basically solved it like a jigsaw. It took forever, but it definitely put us on a map because once we were done with that, we, we showed the, the credentials to anyone that wanted to see, you know, 
what we had to offer uh, by just being able to execute against that one project. And then through doing that, I was able to meet a few individuals through a passion of mine that you kind of mentioned earlier, which is uh, watch collecting. And that opened even more doors um, and, uh, and more opportunities uh, to collaborate with people on much bigger projects. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I want to talk in depth about the watch collecting, not because, um, well, actually, I, I take that back. Because I am interested in watches and I am going to be buying, you know, some luxury watches. So I want to pick your brain, but also too, because you've explained this to me off um, camera, just how valuable it is kind of networking in the right circles. And uh, yeah, before we do that though, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in real estate, but you didn't have the time to find deals yourself? That's where Fundrise comes in. Fundrise is a crowdfunding platform that has transacted over $5 billion in real estate and has over 150,000 active investors. While many funds, like my own, require accredited investors, Fundrise allows anyone to invest with as little as $500. If you'd like to learn more, check out Fundrise.com. Once again, that's Fundrise.com. Are you looking to find off-market real estate deals? One of the best tools my team uses is Batch Leads. With Batch Leads, you're able to pull data, manage lists, and send text messages. On top of that, you can get nationwide access to the MLS to get pictures and comps. My team has used Batch Leads to get some of our best deals, so I know it works. If you want to start today, you can get half off your first month by going to batchleads.io and using the promo code RYAN. Once again, that's batchleads.io, promo code RYAN, for half off your first month. Now, back to the show. All right, so how'd you get into watch collecting, dude? Um, very early on growing up in Kuwait, my dad was actually the one that got me on the watch bug. Um, he handed me a watch when I was in, I think fourth grade and it was an automatic watch. Uh, I think it was a Romer, R O A M E R. It was the very first ever watch that I've been given. And, uh, soon after that, he upgraded me to another watch, which was slightly more valuable and a much better watch and Omega and then a Rolex and then so on and so forth. But I got capped at Rolex. Um, with your dad. Correct. It was his yeah. watch. It wasn't actually my watch, but yeah, he'd yeah. be like, yeah, okay. Wear it for prom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like that. Um, so to that end, I kind of started getting in the habit of, uh, of understanding what watches were about. Um, and then actually once I moved uh, to New York and started working for that uh, VC family office, um, my immediate contact, which was the CEO, um, had an amazing Patek. To this day, I'm still trying to acquire that one particular Patek. Um, and he started telling me all about the watch world and how he's uh, he doesn't actually own any of these watches. He's just passing them down to the next generation and how valuable they are. Uh, and what they mean. I got really interested in this idea of being able to pass down heirlooms to, you know, generations there on after um, in my family. So that was kind of the, the first hook into why I really started appreciating what watches meant um, because they'll be there far beyond the time that I'm going to spend on this earth. Right. And I hope one day further down the line, um, it means a lot to one of my relatives or descendants, or um, and they'd be able to use it as they as they may. Um, 
Now, how valuable are these things? Uh, they're extremely valuable, especially after the blow up of social media. It's gotten exponentially more valuable. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a scarcity premium. And um, right now you were telling me that you're interested in getting an Audemars Piguet, which is one of the Holy Trinity, as they're called. Uh, called. Uh, there's, what, what's the Holy Trinity? It's Audemars Piguet in no order. Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe, and Vacheron Constantin. Um, and those are the three major uh, watch houses in Geneva. Um, Where, where's Rolex? Rolex is a, is definitely up there, but it's not part of the Holy Trinity. Um, and the reason they're not is because there, there's a lot that goes around this, but they're tool watches. And generally speaking, they're not finished to the same caliber that the Holy Trinity are. Uh, so, you know, if you just flip over a Rolex and try to see what it looks like on the backside, you won't be able to, uh, I'll uh, look right now while we're talking about yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. It's there, a, there's nothing. Yeah. It's a steel back. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the reason it's a steel back is because it, it's a multifaceted reason. Part of it is because it's a tool watch. So the particular watch you're wearing is rated for 300 meters, uh, below as water. And uh, to do that, they required certain casing that would withstand certain pressures and whatnot and things to that end. Speaking uh, speaking of that, not to cut you off, but it always seems so funny to me that, like, they're meant for, like, diving and all that. Like, nobody using it for that. Correct. Like, it's used maybe, like, 0.01% of people dive with a Rolex. Correct. Today, <laughs> today you're absolutely right. That's the way it works. Uh, but when they were developed, they were developed as tools, right? Right. For, uh, you know, like uh, the Royal Navy would use Rolexes and that particular watch to be exact uh, to time how long they could stay underwater. So the bezel, the reason why it moves is it's basically telling you, you better be up by the time that this gets there. Right. Uh, and that's basically how much oxygen you would have in your tank. And you needed it to be visible underwater. So they created that little date window that looks like a little bubble so that you'd be able to see it. Yeah. Clearly, um, it's it's very interesting. A lot of these watches were created for a specific purpose, and they serve a purpose. Uh, but obviously, uh, very few people use it for that purpose. <laughs> um, yeah, now they're just for show. It, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, there is a huge uh, watch collector world out there that really appreciates a lot of these uh, watches. Um, but I could only speak for myself, and I can tell you that I've never acted. I don't know how to dive, and I have one of these watches. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, from me finally getting into it about a year ago, okay, so never cared about a watch, never cared about anything. Um, and like last year, as I got into social media, I see all these influencers posting about them. Like, I'd seriously never heard of AP. Yep. And I still can't even say the name right, okay? And I see, I'm like, okay, those look cool. In my mind, I just knew about Rolex. I'm like, Rolex is like the top dog. Yeah. And then to hear you say, well, no, like this is the Holy Trinity. And then, you know, I see these guys and I've seen you wear one, a Richard, how do you say it? Richard Milley or Richard Mill? Um, no knocks to Richard Mill, but I personally don't own a Richard Mill. And uh, I, I own a Patek, I'm a Patek collector. Okay. Um, but yes, it's a Patek Philippe is the watch that I'm currently wearing. And uh, I've never owned a Richard Mill. I'm well, not there, there yet. There we go with me not knowing watches. I <laughs> thought you did. I thought I saw one, but I guess no, not. No. But anyways, so I see all these guys wearing them and stuff. And then I see them all saying that, hey, they're they're an asset. In my mind, I'm like, dude, for all these years, I'm like, these guys are idiots just stunting with these watches. Like, they're not 
worth what they pay. In my mind, they were like cars where they depreciate after you buy Correct. them. And then I looked in, and I'm like, wait a minute. This watch is selling more used than it is new, like significantly more. Correct. And I started to look in, and I'm like, this business makes no sense. It doesn't. And I can't really tell you that it makes sense to me either. Uh, but that's the reality of the market today. Um, there are lots of very highly coveted watches, actually including the one that you're currently wearing, that retails on the open market for a lot more than what you would get it for from Rolex or the the manufacturer. Right. And it's funny. I was uh, I finally made the choice. I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy a really nice watch. I actually, so this Rolex, my dad gave it to me. And same thing as what you were saying with passing it down as an heirloom. This was one of his watches. Yeah. He's always been a jewelry guy. I haven't, but he gave it to me this year for my birthday back in April. And I can tell you, I'll never sell this watch. Yeah. Like this is my first, you know, luxury watch ever. It, it has a lot of sentimental value. I love how it looks, you know, it's just yeah, It's nice. an amazing watch. Yeah. Black stainless and. It's great. Um, but I made the decision. I was like, you know what? been having a good year. I understand that by buying this, it not only is it going to be like look great and I'm going to really appreciate it, but it's also an investment. It it should and will go up, I would think. But even if it doesn't, it's still great. That's fine. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm happy with it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just see things differently now. But long story short, I went to the store. Cause I was like, all right, I'm going to buy one finally. Like, let's see what they got. So I go to AP here at, at the Aria. I walk in and the uh, guy's like, Hey, how's it going? I say, Hey, how's it going? And, uh, I'm looking around. I'm like, where are the watches there? Yeah. He literally did not have one watch. And I go, dude, are the watches in the back? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> he's like, he's like, are you guys afraid you're going to get robbed? Like, what's the deal? He's like, no, we literally don't have a watch. Yeah. He's uh, like, there's none. And I correct. go, why are you even here? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, why are your, why is your store even open? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's crazy, the state of the market. And, uh, you know, with brands like AP, Patek, and uh, VC, they honestly can't keep up with the demand. Um, they have uh, a very high uh, skill requirement for the people that uh, – they employ to be able to finish these watches because they're they're handmade, they're handmade. assembled, right? Uh, and there isn't enough skilled people. workers who can Correct. produce them. You, can, you just you don't have enough people to do that. How long does it take to become a watchmaker? You know, it's not like something I can go hire some guy right now and train him. It takes a long time, right? It it does, and then to be able to get to their caliber is a whole other ballpark. Like you apprentice forever. So to get to the stage where you're actually working on any of these watches that eventually end up on your wrist, say in the next six months, you need to work there forever. So sometimes it's actually not worth the investment to even try to bring people in. You just kind of like- These are who we got. Yeah, these are the people we got and we're just gonna put new people through the paces, but it's gonna be forever before we could produce any more. Yeah, And it might not always make sense for companies to try and even go that route because who knows what's gonna happen in like 10, 15 years. Well, well, the beauty too with these companies is that it's a scarcity-driven product, right? Definitely. So if they do produce less, theoretically, they could just charge more and people will still pay it and their their margin probably be even better. And that's what's been happening. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, so over the last uh, three years, so I'll, I'll tell you a story of a watch that I, I personally acquired. Um, so 
when it was first announced, it was announced for around uh, 170 something thousand dollars. And uh, at the time I was like, oh my God, I, this is the most ridiculous price for a watch. But like every watch nerd, I caved and I put in an order. <laughs> uh, and then I thought I wouldn't see it for a year or two. Um, but having, you know, been with uh, this particular watch group for some time, they reached out to me and they said, hey, we have the watch for you. And between the time that they received the watch and the time that I actually was able to buy it, uh, it was two weeks. Um, so while it's, while it was in the store for two weeks, it went up from being 178000 to being 198000 uh, And that was just a new price list for that particular model. Today, that same model from that same uh, provider is somewhere in the $210,000 range. And that's just getting it directly from the manufacturer. So the prices have been steadily going up. And uh, I honestly don't see them uh, stopping anytime soon. Yeah. Um, Well, because it's just simple supply and demand, like anything. There's just no supply. Absolutely. And the demand is like all time high because everyone's like, oh, I don't want cash. Like I want to invest in things. There's inflation. What am I going to do to protect myself? And people are buying crazy things. Yeah. And to that end, speaking about your Rolex, uh, I... Earlier the year during COVID, uh, I made a COVID purchase because I didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> um, so I bid on a watch on a Philips watch auction. It was a Paul Newman Daytona, and I completely underbid. Like I, it, I just clicked bid on my phone. And it was the bottom dollar that you could bid on it. Their servers went down, and uh, the only time ever. And uh, when they went back up, it went on to the next slot. It was already over. It was already over, and I had won the auction for that particular watch. That watch now retails for around quarter million dollars. Uh, Whoa! I got it for you know excess of two hundred thousand dollars in uh, be- two hundred thousand dollars below market value. Uh, so you got it for like fifty grand. Taxes and all included, it was more because it came from Hong Kong. I bid around 80. And by the time it got to the U.S. and you paid taxes and what else, it probably got close to 100. But yeah. that being said, uh, the bid price is 250 is probably what it should have gone for. So I would probably right. pay in excess of $250,000 right, to get right. it to the U.S. Yeah. Um, and to that end, that watch, when it was being produced back in the day and then this was in in the 70s, 60s, um, was not even $1,000. It's a $300,000 watch. Yeah, so whoever ended up with that watch on their wrist uh, probably didn't feel too bad about having that watch passed down to them or even owning it and making that, you know, investment at the time because I'm pretty sure not a whole lot of things that you invested $1,000 in in, in the 60s would yeah. be worth quarter million dollars today. Right. And the other thing, I mean, like, look, you you look at real estate back then, and obviously it, it's gone up a ton since then. But, uh, you know, for a thousand bucks to get that, you know, 300x return is pretty insane. It, it is. It is pretty insane. And not to say that that's universally the case, but it just happens to be that this, this person lucked out. If you pick the right watch. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it's funny. So when I went to AP, you know, I'm just kind of messing with the guy. I'm like, what are you even doing here, dude? Like, you don't, you don't have a watch. Yeah. What's the point of being here? And uh, we just start talking. I'm like, well, okay, here's the watch I'm looking at. It's this beautiful Royal Oak offshore. It's blue, black, ceramic. Um, one of their 2020 models. I go, can I just order this? And he's like, no. 
And I, I just, and I already knew kind of going into it because I talked to enough watch people, but I yeah. just was like, let's, I just want to see for myself what yeah. happens like as a newbie. Yeah. And uh, he was like, nah, like, you know, we don't do orders like that. Like, here's how it works, dude. If you want to buy that watch, you got to first start with another watch, like yeah. one that no one wants, essentially. You got to work through the paces. Yeah. He's like, you got to spend probably like 30 grand to go buy this like gold watch that no one wants. And then maybe we'll, we'll let you get that watch. Yeah. Uh, so I did just that. Um, <laughs> I, ha- I happened to actually buy a watch that I really liked. It was uh, Royal Oak and it was a chrono. And this was back in the day in uh, 2015. Uh, because I wanted to get a perpetual, a ceramic perpetual, similar to the ceramic case that you have uh, on your new watch. And they said, yeah, sure, just, you know, this will make it easier for you to be able to apply for that piece because you have to have been a collector for some time. And uh, I did just that, and I've been calling the AP Boutique in New York, hi, AP, (laughs) for the last now six years asking for when I'll get allocated one, and I haven't been. Wow. Uh, so it's it's also another thing where it's really uh, they really vet their clients and they're trying to really find out whether you're invested in the brand or if you're here for a good time and then you're going to flip the watch. Yeah. And that's what it seemed like. Most of these companies are like they just want to avoid the flippers. Absolutely. They just want the true people that are going to Abs- buy. Absolutely. Because it's causing a lot of heat and pressure for them because, you know, hypothetically speaking, if I were to get a watch and uh, you are a collector, and I flipped that watch, and I got it and you didn't, you'd be very mad that you spent a whole lot of money at that same supplier, and you didn't get the watch, and I did when I don't even want it. Right, right. You don't value it the way I do as a fan. Exactly. Yeah, and I I, I ended up uh, walking out, and, you know, I was basically like, man, I would rather just buy the watch off market, you know, and pay more than MSRP, because that's just what it is, Mm -hmm. than buy two watches and maybe get it you yeah, know absolutely um but rolex was even the same way i walked into rolex they didn't have any watches um just like no one has watches for sale like new yeah uh unlike the holy trinity rolex is actually playing the market sorry rolex but i'm yeah. just calling it for what it is rolex could actually produce a lot more if they wanted to because a lot of their systems are automated and a lot of their systems um they, they don't have the same issue of craftsmanship that some of these other uh, smaller brands do. And, you know, in volume, Rolex outsupplies all the three just on its own. Uh, but Rolex has realized that they're in creating a scarcity premium. Uh, it makes better for all their lines to sell because now you want to get any Rolex and you can't find any of them. Right. Um, while, you know, in 2007, when I got my first Rolex, we haggled down the price. I think it was 35% <laughs> from, from MSRP. You know, we got that it. don't happen no more. You're, you're going to pay double for it. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's funny enough because I think a lot of these, uh, watch brands actually got this from the car industry, uh, where, you know, people like Ferrari and Lamborghini were the first ones to device this kind of, uh, scarcity, uh, premium and the arbitrage between, uh, what it means to be a partner with the brand and what it means to be, you know, just someone that wants to get a car now today and not really invest into the longer vision of where the brand is going. Right. Right. No, I'm with you, man. You actually were telling me a crazy story about a Patek you just bought. That's like got crazy equity. Yeah. So, um, 
I put in a application for uh, Patek some, I'd say, now it's been probably three to four years. As soon as it came out, you know, fell in love with the piece. It's a perpetual calendar, which means that it never loses time, day, date, month, um, ever for eternity. Uh, no How does it? That's crazy. That, this this Rolex, I <laughs> crazy. I feel really dumb now, but I. You know, I wore it for the first time, and then I didn't, and then I, I'm like, why did it stop? Does it need a new battery, or, like, what's the deal? <laughs> like, I, started, I was like, what is going on with it? I even told my assistant, Gabe, I go, hey, can you take this back to Rolex and, like, <laughs> like fix it? Yeah, I was like, what's going on? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's not that it's an automatic movement. What I actually meant is if you keep it wound, right, so if it always has power, and you keep it in, like, a, in, in a box that would wind it all the time, it will keep track of which year you're in. So leap year, day, date, month. So February, usually we, we don't have the same days in the year. Sometimes it's a leap year, sometimes it's not. And right. you end up having to readjust your watch, right? And that happens every so many years, uh, for it to be particular. Uh, and this particular watch will never lose time. So if I keep it in its winding case, or if someone's always wearing it, it will consistently tell you which day, which month, which, what time it is, and where the moon is in the sky <laughs> forever. That's crazy. So to just be able to do that mechanically, obviously your phone could tell you that. but We don't care about that. Yeah, we don't. But, <laughs> but to be able to do that mechanically is yeah. mind-boggling. Yeah. So that watch uh, was offered to me uh, through the the distributor um, directly, and uh, it was $130,000. This is a Patek. Correct, it was a yeah. Patek. And um, you know, I believe that they go on the open market somewhere between um, 550 to 650. Uh, Insane. And it's, and I'm, I feel very uh, fortunate to be able to be offered this particular piece. Um, but at the same time, it's it's very scary to, to kind of wear it so yeah. um, i've only wore it once and it was around the house <laughs> and then it went straight back in the safe in the bank dude that's crazy so with that what's the deal i mean what's to stop you from flipping it it would just ruin your reputation uh it absolutely would uh so the idea here is um i i have no intention of flipping it um it's something that i genuinely enjoy and i'm passionate about um but it definitely does help to, to feel that, you know, you're applying your hard-earned cash towards a hobby that isn't going to eat away at future generations' wealth, right. if that makes sense. Like, I think about my daughter. I, I probably wouldn't throw $130,000 at anything today if I didn't think that if she fell on hard times, she'd be able to liquidate that and then make some money on it, and she'd be able to do it easily, right, um, if I'm not around. So to that end... I definitely think that having a hobby that kind of uh, protects some of the investment that you make in it makes it a lot easier to enjoy that hobby without having a lot of guilt surrounding it. Right. Um, and that's why I feel fortunate is that both I get to enjoy my hobby and at the same time I don't feel bad that I'm, you know, destroying my family's future. Right, right. No, I mean, it's it's the best of both worlds, really. Exactly. Um, so just to be clear, though, with this watch, you bought it and uh, – you know, you have no intention to sell it, obviously, but if you did, pretty much you wouldn't be able to, you lose that relationship with them. Absolutely. And uh, and it's a pretty big deal because not only would I lose the relationship with them, uh, they would lose the relationship with the manufacturer 
Yeah. So if I were to if I were to hypothetically sell a watch within a five year period of acquiring it, then the manufacturer would eventually find out because it's a very closely knit world. And if for you to sell a piece of that caliber, you probably need to auction it, right? Right. So everyone knows the serial number to the watch, who has the watch. They only it's easy to tell where it came from. Exactly, and they only delivered probably 30 in the world. Yeah. So it's one of these 30 guys. It's that pink-haired guy that exa- sold it. Exactly. <laughs> it's the pink-haired guy that sold it. So to that end, they know exactly every individual. Right. And they've met them too. So to that end. Yeah, they make you do like an application to see if exactly. you're a fit for to wear. <laughs> exactly. Do you appreciate it or not? Do you understand it or not? Right. Uh, and I had to interview several times. By, I got, by the way, AP. I I'm, I'm a, I appreciate it. Now. Just so everyone know, everyone's clear. I appreciate the watch industry and movement. So if anyone wants to give me relationship, <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. I won't sell it. <laughs> so to that end, I was actually flown out to New York to meet with the uh, higher ups and you know interview with them, get to know them. We've all spent a really great time together. Uh, amazing people, and um, so g- going back to what would happen is not only will I lose the relationship with my direct distributor, the distributor themselves would be flagged for selling to a person that the manufacturer deems as a flipper. Right. Uh, and then they kind of lose that account, which right. is a huge deal. Yeah. Because uh, they lose that revenue stream. Right. No, I'm um, with you, man. Especially for a commodity that sells like hotcakes. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just crazy to me that these guys just don't go and sell it for 500000 when they know that that's the true market value. but And you know, a lot of people do. Uh, but they hurt a lot of people around them that help them acquire these pieces. No, no, I'm saying like the manufacturer themselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, like why is Patek not just selling it for half a mil when they know it sells for that? I, You know what? That's a great question. Patek, reach out to Ryan Pinedo. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I want to get Patek's founder or whoever's the head of Patek, and I just got to know the answer. Harry Stern is the head of Patek. Okay. You could... You know, sweet guy, directly reach out to him. So why is Patek your favorite brand compared to the other two? And why, a, do, and why don't you like Richard Milley? So we could get to Richard Mill at the, at the end of this, but um, why is Patek my favorite? Um, Patek has a lot of lines of watch uh, kinds, right? So they have their dress watch, and they have almost every other watch complication that is known to man. And not only that, they always are innovating with new complications uh, that could be useful or might not be useful. But to that end, the selection that you can get with Patek is unprecedented with any other watch manufacturer, in my opinion. Um, A lot of brands get stuck on one watch face and type, and AP being one of them. You know, they had Gerald Genta design one watch for them, and it's their bread and butter. It's, you know, the octa- octagonal looking watch, uh, which is kind of similar to the one that you are acquiring. But then once you've had that, you're basically going to keep acquiring watches that are octagonal shaped and kind of do more or less the same thing. Different colors, different sizes. Uh, but Patek has a wide range of variety that you can kind of pick through. Uh, and also Patek... Uh, is one of the only watch manufacturers that will continue to service their watch through eternity. So if you got a wa- their first watch, they will service it for you today. You can't say the same for Rolex. Um, I do believe that AP would be able to do the same. I don't know to what extent uh, because I don't have that large uh, a rapport with them. Um, 
I also think that VC would. Um, but Patek definitely finishes their watches to a caliber that is unprecedented to any other watchmaker. And to be very frank, they also hold the best value out of all the watch manufacturers. And if they've done they've done so through millennia. Uh, well, not millennia, but like a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so to that end, I just felt most comfortable putting my money where I thought is safest and I could still and enjoy, enjoy my it. hobby. Right. So what's the problem with Richard Mill? Richard Mill, I think, as a company, is a genius idea. You know, um, the manufacturer was able to capture a very specific market and they went after it aggressively and they nailed it. As a business, I love Richard Mill. As a consumer, though, I don't necessarily think that I have uh, the wealth to, <laughs> to fit within the group. Uh, and then, two, um, I just think the, the worksmanship is great, phenomenal. But not worth that kind of money. But in no way justified for that kind of yeah, money. I got you. Um, yeah, it, it's just like, it's a status thing at this point. It's just like, exactly. you know, oh, dang, like you spent hundreds of thousands it's, at a minimum. It's a boys club. Yeah. It's a good old boys club. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of good old boys club, um, that's kind of part of the reason why you got into watches. Tell me about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, I at the time when I moved to L.A., um, obviously at the time I'm an immigrant, uh, moved to a new city, uh, lots of very successful individuals. If you're successful and you've kind of decided that, you know, everything's on autopilot and money isn't an issue, you probably own a property in L.A. or California on the coast somewhere. So lots of extremely successful people in my field and in other fields. And uh, it's very hard to network. And I didn't have, you know, a relative or family member, anyone to introduce me to anyone to that, to that matter. Um, and even to join a golf club, it would almost be impossible for me to do so. Uh, because you have to be referred by someone and get vetted and whatnot. You also want to be a decent golfer. Exactly. You have to be a <laughs> you decent have to have golfer. Some skill. Exactly. And I've never had a club, uh, never held a club in my life. <laughs> so, you know, I have no business doing any of that stuff. But the one thing that I've said that I've consistently been passionate about is watches. Um, and I realized very quickly that it's in, it's one of the few ways in which I could meet individuals that are, you know, successful or like-minded. Um, and frankly, I think people like to work with people that, uh, they know. Uh, you, obviously, you have to be really good at what you do, and no one's gonna ex throw you a bone just because they like what you, they like the same hobby you do. Um, but knowing people and you know, um, it starts a conversation. I mean, does. like, look, if you've, if you're a watch guy, and I, I, I see you're wearing a Patek, I'm like, okay, like this guy. For one, it, it provides some source of credibility. Like he's got some money to be wearing a Patek. And then two, you know, if you bring it up in conversation and then I hear you talk about it the way you talk, I'm like, okay, this guy, Understand he's something. pretty sophisticated. Yeah, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. And having that kind of commonality, I think, brings people together a lot easier uh, because there is a common interest, right? Uh, and it opened up a lot of doors for me, to be honest. I'm, I'm not even going to pretend that uh, it hasn't because it's been one of the main ways in which I've been able to uh, meet a lot of the people that I do business with today right. and are right now some of my closest friends. I almost see them every day for work or otherwise. And we've gone, we've 
kind of migrated not from only being friends around watches and real estate developments, but now cars and travel and everything else. Uh, yeah, and a lot of these guys are your lenders and business partners exactly. now. And exactly. You know, I'll tell you for me, um, I used to just always hate on that type of person. Like, oh man, like if somebody values the Ferraris and the watches and all this stuff, like I don't even want to do business with them anyway. Like, right. I want guys who are like-minded, like it's the same mindset of you want to work with like-minded people. And so yeah. I was like, I want the rich people who don't care about that stuff and I want to work with them. And to an extent that was how I got started. But then as I've realized, like, you know, the majority I don't want to say the majority, but there's a huge segment of these wealthy people who are not like that, right? Yeah. They do value the nice cars and the nice watches and stuff. And like, you know, they will still work with you if you don't have it, but you're going to have to really like prove yourself some type of way because you're not going to stand out to them immediately unless somebody has told them about you, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. they're like, oh yeah, I know Ryan. Like I've seen, he's legit with what he does. But if I'm going to go try and meet somebody cold off the street, at a club or the golf club or whatever it is, their their first impression of me is going to be whatever I present myself as, what kind of car I'm driving and, you know, if I'm wearing a watch. And just being a member at the club already kind of gives, obviously, that um, credibility. But, uh, I mean, I joined the golf club for the same exact reason. Like, I want to get around the people that, you know, maybe aren't following me, who have no idea who I am, that maybe are part of that good old boys club. And I'm cool with that. Like, I just want to be in it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's very interesting that you, you've you mentioned kind of uh, your perspective on, on, you know, how you used to think about it and what you think about it now, how you think about it now. Uh, and in my personal experience, a lot of the people that end up making it really big were the people that were really grinding in school, man. Like for the vast majority of the people that I at least know, they're all really hard workers. You're just seeing them at the tail end of their journey where they're uh, maybe – able to enjoy some of the luxuries uh, that they've worked really hard to get to. Um, some people don't enjoy doing that and they invest their money in other ways uh, and that's absolutely fine. But regardless of which way people decide to uh, express themselves, it doesn't change in my opinion that finding a, com a common ground with uh, your business partners is an extremely important asset. Yeah, no, I'm with you, dude. And I'm a full believer now. I mean, it's part of the reason why I'm now, you know, spending more on these things like buying the Porsche, buying the the AP and stuff. And, you know, even I've got a Louis Vuitton wallet now. I just got my first <laughs> Louis Vuitton piece. But Congratulations. You know, I'm I'm part of the club now. But uh, <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> never had any of that stuff my entire life until I turned 32 years old. And, uh, you know, now, too, it's also at the point where it's like I feel like with how much I make and my wealth now, it's not going to cripple me in a way where, dang, now I can't buy this deal or do this investment because I was, I bought that stupid car. Like it would have did that years ago. Yeah. And it just, to me, I couldn't justify it, but now I can. So I'm in a different point in my life too. I, absolutely. And I think, uh, exactly like you just said, you've made it to a place where you could enjoy those things, but think about, uh, yourself five years ago, probably not would have wanted to do business with yourself today. No, just for sure. based on those, you know, three things that you mentioned. No, I, I for sure would have made fun of myself. Yeah. No doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, dude, we've been already like, I could talk about watches all day, but, um, <laughs> I, I promised the audience, we'd talk a little bit about what you're doing now. 
yeah. in business. So, I mean, the watches have led you to being able to do a lot of these cool things you're doing in business. Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, between having a passion that was uh, kind of a common ground with uh, a lot of individuals that I currently work with and um, the the level and caliber of work that we were doing independently on our own, uh, I was kind of able to merge those two things together um, where now we're working on three properties in the Golden Triangle in Beverly Hills, which is we're working on a property in on Camden, we're working on a property on Beverly, and we're working on a property on Rodeo, which are the three main streets in right. the Beverly Hills uh, Golden Triangle. You know, people in my line of work uh, wait their entire life to kind of get to the place where they get offered the opportunity to kind of bid on these projects. It requires a lot of skill, and on top of skill, a lot of connecting. Uh, now we're, I mean, look, it, it, people hate to, to know this, but the truth is the hardest worker doesn't always succeed. The, the most talented guy doesn't always succeed. Much of business is, actually, majority of business is relationships and the people you meet. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, there's obviously a certain threshold that you have to be at. Right. But beyond that, there are so many more bits of business that you're coaching a lot of your students, including myself, on. Um, and those are the things that really define a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. And uh, I, I couldn't stress that, uh, you know, being part of your group has definitely made me reorient some of my thinking about what I do with some of these deals and how we execute on them. And it's actually opened more doors just by looking at things from your perspective and how we could kind of uh, put out our name and our messaging uh, in different ways. Yeah. Um, well, you know, what's funny is um, for those listening, uh, we met at my workshop and you came to the VIP day. And you know, I mentioned you, you're, you're like going backwards. You're coming from the top. You, know, you come to my workshop, which is about house flipping and wholesaling. And I remember looking at you and I go, why would you want to do this? I was like, you don't want to flip and wholesale. You're already like doing this high level stuff. Like, let's just tweak your existing business in a way that is just like way more lucrative than anything that, you know, we, we'd be doing flipping and wholesaling. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. And honestly, <laughs> having spoken to you and s s what I was really struggling with at the time was kind of being able to scale. Like, where do I take my business from here now today? Uh, with what I do, there's a lot of uh, creativity that goes into the process and it's very time intensive. While the projects have a lot of accolade to them and they're very high net worth uh, exits, it doesn't change that it takes several years to just go through one cycle for any one of these projects. The payday is great. Just takes a long time. It takes a long time and the systems aren't optimized. It's always like starting a new business. Every project is a new business. Right. And the reason why I was really drawn to uh, your business is because you're out golfing. <laughs> I see you on Instagram. You're out golfing and your business is churning. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy's a genius. I need to learn what he's doing. Um, and that was basically the main drive for why I wanted to join your program. I wanted to understand how is it that you're able to be at the golf course, be with your family, and still churn you know, revenue the way that you are and start multiple businesses. And what it really came down to was optimizing what you're good at and then hiring for those things that you're not so good at. 
Right. Um, or the things that just take a long time. Exactly. So it, you basically run a very lean machine. And I had a lot of fat on my machine. Yeah. And I was trying to, and still am, you know, I'm on your call every week. I'm yeah. learning something new every week. Right. Uh, and while it might be from a completely different perspective, it doesn't change. It's still applicable. The principles are yeah, the same. The principles are the same. Right. Uh, and actually through being in your uh, workshop, I was able to link up with Eric. And now we're doing developments in Nashville, you know, and the return on investment in the developments in Nashville is also ridiculous. It's honestly been an, a very eye-opening opportunity to see how different states are doing business and what the returns on those uh, investments are. And this is one of the ways in which I've been able to expand my business in other states that otherwise I would have to build everything from the ground up, which is a lot of time and money, as you know. Yeah, no, I, I feel you, dude. And even you and I are working on something big together. I'm not going to say it on the podcast because I think it's I think it's a pretty revolutionary idea, but you, you guys will know about it after we have all the market share. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that that's part of the thing too, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're crushing it even before. You know, you get in the program, you're learning a bunch of new things, but the networking, which has been the theme of this entire episode, right? Like, why, do you, why are you getting in the watch game? I mean, yeah, it's fun, but the networking is where the real value Absolutely. is. Absolutely. The coaching, the networking, you're already doing deals with Eric. You and I are about to do some, and that will not be the only deals you do. You're going to end up doing stuff with a bunch of the other people in the group Absolutely. too. So I, I just love seeing it, man. And I think it's, uh, for anyone listening to this, if you think that you can do this business as just a one-man band or do it solo and you know, you're going to just stay in your own little box, I mean, I challenge you to get out of your comfort zone and really just get around people. You don't have to join my program. Just like get around people and start networking with the right people. Yeah. One thing that you've said that has uh, resonated very true with me is real estate is a team sport. It absolutely is. You know, you I think you've said it multiple times and now I've. I've said it to everyone I meet, like, <laughs> like it's my idea. <laughs> I remember just like, uh, I think it was three days ago, we were working on a, a, a very exciting development in on Rodeo, and I mentioned this to one of the investors, you know, real estate is a team sport. And I, like, it just fit the sentence completely because yeah. they're an investor out of the Middle East, and there are so many moving parts to making this project successful that he had a lot of angst about being able to execute all of this by himself. I said, you're not. That's yeah. why we're here. You're an LP. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to do the work. Yeah. So to that end, real estate is a team sport. And what we're going to execute against is everyone's doing their job and everyone knows what they're going to do. And as far as everyone does that, yeah. we're going to crush it. I love it, dude. And completely true. I would not be anywhere where I'm at today without my team. And I'm just trying to grow my team so I can reach new places because that's, that's what it takes, man. So, well, dude. This has been a really fun interview, man. I, every time I talk to you, it's like there's always like some new idea that uh, I just love hearing. And obviously, it's because you're creative. And I'll, you. I, even though I've influenced you, I'll say you influenced me to dye my hair blue. <laughs> and maybe I'll maybe I'll go pink one of these days. But I think for me, for now, the next color is red. But it could end up being a very light red that yeah, maybe maybe is pink. I don't know. Uh, honestly, man, uh, meeting you and the group has been definitely life-changing for me and every time we get on that call there is something new that I learn you know uh, I'm doing something that's you think is slightly different to what you do but 
the process and the and the way the logic that you go about building a business, especially you have like multiple at this point. Um, how many are they? Six. Yeah. Yeah. So six businesses and still be able to do all those other things where you spend time with your family and spend time to golf and enjoy life. It's all about the way that you think about these and how you position the right individuals for it. And uh, having that is uh, is extremely valuable. You've been life-changing. Appreciate, Appreciate you, bro. So for anyone listening who wants to maybe uh, join your watch crew or <laughs> do some development with you, um, or just network with you, man. Like, where can they find you? Uh, so my personal Instagram handler is last underscore citizen. And then our website is samaha.com, which is my last name.com. S- spell it. S-A-M-A-H-A.com. Okay. Uh, kind of like Yamaha, but with an S. Samaha. Exactly. Uh, and that's my family name. And uh, it'll, you'll be able to see all the kind of uh, work and cool things that we do on there. Cool. So guys, make sure you check them out. Make sure you give them a follow. Uh doing some amazing things in LA and uh, it's going to be exciting to see all the other things you accomplish. So guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. If you're on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. Catch you on the next one. Peace. Thanks for watching the Ryan Pineda show. If you want to work with me, head over to ryanpineda.com. You can find my courses, coaching programs, and upcoming events. We also have free resources you can download. So head over to ryanpineda.com.